string of lethal carjackings terrorize the Washington, D.C. area. Ballistics reveal that it's the work of a serial killer who tries to run over one victim with his own car. The FBI and police set a clever trap but the killer insists on a violent shootout. a serial killer stalked lone victims in the dead of night. His hunting ground, the suburbs of Washington, D.C. His target, anyone who owned a car. I'm Jim Kallstrom, former head of the FBI's New York office. The gunman was as elusive as he was deadly. He struck quickly and without mercy. Now the FBI must follow the twisted path of a killer wherever it leads. November 13th, 1991. Silver Spring, Maryland, a suburb north of Washington, D.C. Montgomery County Police respond to a report of shots fired at a car dealership. Officers discover the body of a woman shot in the chest and forehead. And another gunshot victim nearby. The man is breathing but unconscious. Paramedics rush him to the hospital. Montgomery County homicide detective Ed Day coordinates his department's swift response to the slaying. You saturate the case as fast as you can, work on it as fast as you can, get as much information as fast as you can, and try to resolve it as fast as you can. Uh, unfortunately, the homicides, uh, time is terrible. The more time goes by, the less your odds are that you're going to have a satisfactory conclusion to the investigation. Investigators learn the two victims are janitors. They were cleaning the building that night and would have come outside around 10 p.m. to dump the garbage. The detectives worked to determine a motive for the attack. You don't overlook the obvious. You have a shooting like this at a car lot. Uh, is that a possible uh, motive for the killing, the theft of a car? Of course, had representatives from the auto dealer come out, uh, do an inventory. There was no vehicles missing. Uh, there was no property missing from the inside of the establishment. Investigators locate the victim's car keys nearby and determine neither of their personal vehicles are missing. Robbery does not seem to be the motive. Nothing was taken. They had money on them. Uh, there wasn't a single thing missing. Are you Mr. Escobar's attendant physician? Yes, I am. With almost no evidence to go on, Detective Day hopes to learn more from the critically wounded man. He's innovative. He's also in a coma. 
and he's just not uh, responding. We do that with all any kind of a, a shooting that's potentially fatal. Uh, there's a rule in law that a dying declaration does not have to be corroborated. It's not hearsay because if the person knows he's going to die, he's assumed to be able to be telling the truth. Uh, so if you can get a, a, a statement from somebody in really serious uh, circumstances, and it's always a very, very powerful piece of evidence. But the victim dies nine days later without ever regaining consciousness. During the autopsy, the medical examiner recovers the only piece of physical evidence, the bullets that killed the victims. At the Maryland State Police Crime Lab, ballistics expert Joe Capera examines the evidence to determine if there was more than one shooter. There was a microscopic uh, comparison done to determine if these bullets were fired from the same gun. And indeed, as a conclusion to these examinations, I, I concluded that these bullets were fired from the same gun. Examining the scratch patterns on the bullets, Capera determines the make and model of the murder weapon. I was able to ascertain, first of all, the caliber of the gun, which was a 357, and then through the measurements of the unique uh, landing groove areas, I was able to ascertain that it was a Ruger 357. With no obvious motive for the slayings, Detectives explore the victim's personal lives for clues. If you work inside out, you try to find out if these people had any uh, enemies, if there was any triangle, you know, thwarted lover or something like that. These things take you in a hundred different directions, and you just have to you have to take care of one thing at a time. You eliminate something, and you move on to the next issue, and you just go from there. Detectives find nothing in the victims' backgrounds that could have led to their murders. Since investigators found the victims' car keys near the bodies, they decide to re-examine the slayings as a failed car theft. With that possible motive in mind, detectives speculate how the crime might have occurred. They were cleaning. The business was closed for the night. They were uh, taking the trash out. Hey! Makes it easy, just throw me your Detectives key. suspect the gunman demanded the victim's car keys. The keys. Here, do right here. Don't come here, man. Based on the position of the woman's body relative to her keys, they believe she tried to run. And you have to make the assumption that he lost control of the situation and decided to kill the two of them before he identified what car belonged to them. He escalated an attempt theft into a murder for no good reason. With little evidence to go on, the case grows cold. Then, three months later, Investigators respond to the scene of another homicide.
They find the body of psychology professor Dr. Shaheen Hastrudi lying in a parking lot in Bethesda, Maryland. Unable to locate her car, detectives believe she was the victim of a fatal carjacking. Noting the lack of blood spatter evidence near the body, they suspect Hastrudi's assailant shot her while she was still inside her car. Through interviews with her colleagues, authorities determined Dr. Hastrudi left her office around 8 p.m. She's obviously uh, accosted. At some point, gets in her car. Get in the car! Start! Start the car! Start the car! Start the car! Once she's already in the car, she's shot. She's taken out of the car, dumped on the on the lot, and the suspect steals her car. Gunshot wound to the head. Large caliber. No witnesses. The only solid evidence is a pair of bullets recovered from the victim's body. Investigators send the bullets to the Maryland State Police Crime Lab to compare them with the bullets from the double homicide. It is a match. The two crimes are connected. So we get a couple of crimes here. Homicide detectives begin examining unsolved cases involving similar circumstances. One detective recalls a recent homicide which occurred a month before Hastrudi was killed. That victim was also shot in the head with a large caliber gun. As in the Silver Spring double homicide, responding officers found the victim's keys near his body. But this victim didn't own a car, which leads investigators to question whether car theft was the motive, or if the case is even connected to the other shootings. But we said, you know, this is looking like they're definitely linked for some reason. Let's get some ballistics on. So authorities locate the bullet from that case and send it to be tested. Ballistics expert Joe Capera compares the bullets from the four homicides. I did a cross-comparison examination to the previous bullets. And as a result of that examination, I found out that all the bullets were fired from the same weapon. Investigators have connected the four homicides through the ballistic evidence and an apparent car theft motive, but they cannot understand why the killer chose to murder his victims. None of these people were armed. Stature-wise, none of these people I thought were particularly a threat to uh, the suspect. Two possibilities. He lost control of them and felt the best way to regain control of the situation was to kill them or there was some uh, psychological reason that he didn't like these particular people. 
Detectives believe they are dealing with an extremely violent and unpredictable criminal and suspect he may still be in the area. Montgomery County was his basis of operation. That's where he felt the most comfortable. That's where he did all his murders. That's where he did his, you know, his most risky business. That's where he laid in wait for people. Uh, so it was obvious he had some strong tie to Montgomery County. Investigators suspect he will strike again and hope to stop him before he does. But they have no clues that can help identify him. And the killer's weapon is the only thing that can connect him to the murders. The best evidence we got is bullets. And if we can get him and get the gun, then we have definitely have a very, very strong case. Authorities don't want to give the killer a reason to destroy his gun, and with it, their only evidence. So they decide to keep the ballistics match away from the media. If we supply the information to the press that all the bullets came from the same gun, be a good likelihood that he would either dispose of the weapon or he would, in worst-case scenario, obtain a different weapon and keep committing the crime. More than a week after the Hastruti killing, a man wearing a stocking mask and latex gloves robs a bank in Chantilly, Virginia. The bank's video security system captures his image. tells the FBI that the bank robber fled in a late model white vehicle and gives them the license plate number. The description of the getaway car matches the vehicle stolen from Hastruti, attracting the attention of Montgomery County detectives. But the license plate is not Hastruti's. Investigators trace the plate and discover it had been stolen from a vehicle in Annandale, Virginia. For detectives, this leaves open the possibility that Hestrudy's car was used in the bank robbery. The Montgomery County Task Force, which now includes agents from the FBI, requests copies of the bank's surveillance tapes to learn what they can about the robber. Investigators watch the crime unfold and notice the robber is carrying a revolver of the same make and caliber used in the four homicides. They think he could be the killer. The footage is the best lead they have in identifying a suspect, according to FBI Special Agent Robert Coffey. We had a great piece of video that actually showed the individual the handgun. That picture was actually put on the news locally and, and regionally to try to see if we could spark some interest as far as someone identifying him. Investigators also release information that their suspect, the money he stole, and the vehicle he was driving may be covered in red dye. 
you do anything, a phone call, anything, I'm going to shoot somebody. The teller managed to slip dye packs into the, uh, the bag of money. And a dye pack is a, is a device that once it goes through the door of the bank, it's electronically activated. There's a timer on it that gives a person a little bit of time to get away from the, the bank, and then it explodes, spewing this terrible red dye. It stains. It's very difficult to get off. It gets on the money, and it can't, will not come off the money. It takes a while to get it off you personally. Five days after the bank robbery, police in Northern Virginia find an abandoned car bearing the stolen plates reported by the witness. A check of the vehicle identification number proves that it is a Strudy's car. The officer peers inside, examining the interior. We had uh, the red dye stains in it from the dye packs from the bank. We had proof positive that it had been used in the bank robbery. Officers impound the vehicle and transport it to the police garage for processing. Technicians find blood stains inside the car and collect samples as evidence. But they do not find anything that can identify the killer. Lab examiners extract DNA from the blood evidence and compare it to Hestrudis. It is a match. Finally, investigators are able to look at the various crimes and understand their suspect's overall plan. It's gelled into something that makes a little bit of sense. You went from a situation where you had a whole bunch of motives that really didn't make sense to now a concrete motive that this person is killing people to steal cars to commit bank robberies. Although authorities now understand why the suspect is murdering innocent people, they have no clue who he is. Investigators face the nearly impossible challenge of identifying and catching a ruthless gunman before he kills again. The FBI and Maryland's Montgomery County Police are hunting a killer who has already committed four homicides as well as a bank robbery. Several FBI agents are part of the task force pursuing the gunman, including Special Agent Robert Coffey. One of the main roles of the FBI, specifically in this type of a crime, is that we work with many different agencies to corral all of the investigators and bring forth the information in one kind of a think tank. This multi-agency approach is an invaluable investigative resource for Montgomery County homicide detective Ed Day. When you start working with multiple jurisdictions on different cases, well, the more jurisdictions are involved, the more jurisdictions have an interest, the more assets you can draw from. The task force now understands their suspect's crime pattern. He steals a person's car at gunpoint, killing his victim, then uses the vehicle in a bank robbery. 
Investigators continue to look for past unsolved cases that involved a similar pattern. Nothing occurs in a vacuum. Uh, somebody doesn't just start killing people, so that's when we really start doing the research. They identify an incident that occurred in their county almost a year earlier. Our victim was a uh, maintenance man, an Hispanic male. He was uh, accosted by a white male carrying a large caliber dark handgun. When the masked gunman asked for the victim's car keys, the man claimed he didn't own a car. The suspect demanded to know which car belonged to him. He was told to turn around and face away from the suspect, get down on his knees, and put his hand behind his head. Where's your car? Our victim at that time felt quite certain that he was going to be executed. Suspect fired three shots. Uh, one of the shots hit him in the forearm. The victim managed to flee down an alley and hide behind a bush. And spent some minutes there waiting for the situation to calm down. After ten minutes, the victim returned to the street and waved down the first car he saw, hoping for assistance. To his horror, it was the gunman. neighbor had called police. The victim's life was spared. The following day, a witness reported seeing a masked gunman leaving the scene of a bank robbery in Centerville, Virginia. Police later recovered the getaway vehicle and determined it was the car stolen from the maintenance man. Investigators examine the evidence gathered at the scene of the carjacking. All they have is a bullet fragment that was lodged in the victim's arm. Ballistics expert Joe Capera. One does not necessarily need the whole bullet as long as the fragment that is left that he is examining has enough ballistic evidence on it that he can use. He tests the fragment against the other recovered bullets to determine if that case is connected to their current investigation. The bullet fragment matches, but the task force is still no closer to identifying their suspect. With little hard evidence, investigators study the killer's behavior as exhibited through his actions, searching for clues to his identity. This guy... Authorities examine the newly linked case and determine he is unusually bold and cocky. When the investigators got together and discussed the commitment level of this individual to stay at a crime scene for 10 minutes waiting for a witness to come back, um, raised our level of concern about the subject himself. He's not in a big hurry. It feels pretty comfortable that the police aren't going to be there anytime soon. Investigators also believe the suspect has a quick-tempered, vengeful personality. 
he's very upset with his victim, he's decided that uh, he has been himself wronged in some way and he's going to uh, make him pay for it. But authorities cannot understand why the suspect uses what appears to be an unnecessary level of violence during the carjackings. It does not make sense to kill somebody in the least risky part of the crime. The biggest risk he's taken is when he goes into those banks as far as getting captured, being identified, or running into any real obstacles. Taking these people, you know, innocent people off in the middle of the night in, in, in a ground of his own choosing where he can isolate them. I mean, he's safer at that location than he is at any, anywhere else and anything else he does. So it just doesn't make sense why he chose to, to kill these people. Their suspect is not only dangerously disturbed, but also clever. One of the more interesting parts of uh, the MO that this individual used was the number of jurisdictions through which he perpetrated his crimes. He exploits the fact that no single police department can readily see his entire crime pattern. We have a carjacking in one jurisdiction. We have a stolen tag from a second jurisdiction. We have a bank robbery in a third jurisdiction. And then we have the car abandoned in a fourth jurisdiction. The gunman's efforts to stymie police do not stop there. Each time he abandons a stolen car, he leaves it unlocked with the keys in plain view. One of the difficult parts of recovering the vehicles following the robberies is that they were being driven by other people. By leaving the vehicle with the keys in it, the vehicles were then subsequently restolen, leaving the vehicles to be restolen destroyed whatever forensic evidence would have been left behind. So the only thing we had to match all of the crimes was the forensic evidence from the ballistics. Investigators continue to look for additional unsolved carjackings in which the vehicle was later used in a bank robbery. They identify a case that occurred within miles of the other thefts. A woman was walking out of a doctor's office and realized that she was being followed. She turned to try to go back to the doctor's office, but was confronted by the individual and then asked for her keys. They walked over to the car. Come on, come on, come on. Start it. Start the car. Start the, the gunman car. gunman forced start the frightened the woman to start her car. And upon starting the vehicle, had her get out and kneel down next to a wall. On your knees. Upon kneeling down, he had her wait there for a short period of time. She described as 30 or 40 seconds passed. You have to wonder how long, much of that time did he spend thinking about whether or not he was going to shoot her. She was very compliant, did everything she was told to do right when she was told to do it. That might have saved her. 
The next day, her vehicle was used in a bank robbery. The investigators wonder why their suspect allowed this woman to live, yet killed the others. They come up with several theories. The fact that she was a Caucasian female might have had something to do with it. He might have had uh, harbored some malice towards uh, Hispanic people or foreign people. or uh, It could be something simple about he lost control in those situations. In fact, the best way to get, gain control was to kill the task force has little to work with, but is determined to go on the offensive. Now we're trying to figure out how can we get ahead of him? How can we be in a position where we can be waiting for him when he does something? Or we can be prepared to mobilize very quickly with the resources necessary to get him. The investigators focus on the one aspect of the suspect's crime pattern that they can anticipate. You could not predict when a carjacking would take place. They were too random. We did, however, know that following the carjacking, we would have a bank robbery. If authorities can only predict which banks he will rob or where he will be traveling, they might have a chance to catch him. A masked gunman strikes again and again in suburban Maryland, just north of the nation's capital. He shoots his victims while stealing their cars. Which he later uses to rob banks. In the spring of 1992, the FBI and Montgomery County Police analyzed their suspect's habits in hopes of trapping him. Homicide detective Ed Day. We had people take aerial photographs of every crime scene and the different uh, escape routes and things of that nature, trying to find some logical pattern to what he was doing, something that would maybe give us a clue. What are consistencies? What are inconsistencies? Is there anything like that that we can use to our advantage to, to foretell what he might do next? On the surface, the list of crime scenes appears random. But a closer look by investigators reveals all the banks he robbed share a single trait. Everywhere he went, he had access to a major roadway. They would take him pretty quickly to a thoroughfare like 495 or 270 or something like that. The task force shifts their focus from predicting where the suspect will strike next to catching him when he makes his escape after a bank robbery. They decide they will cast a dragnet on all highway exit ramps in the area. FBI Special Agent Robert Coffey. We developed a plan where we would cast a net using all of the jurisdictions, the law enforcement within the Washington area, to where once the bank robbery were to take place, he would have to pass through some points of the net. Meeting with officers from every police department in the area, the task force details their plan. They will watch for any carjacking reports resembling their suspect's M.O., 
Officers from each jurisdiction will then prepare for a quick response if a bank is subsequently robbed. They will immediately stake out pre-assigned highway exit ramps targeting the stolen car. There was enough support at each particular location that he could be followed. Uh, we could bring to bear enough additional uh, manpower to make a stop of our choosing and, uh, of course, uh, effect an arrest if we were lucky enough to spot him. Ready to cast their net, investigators wait for the suspect to steal a car. At 5 a.m. each morning, Special Agent Coffey begins his day by reviewing the reports of all the area car thefts from the night before. He looks for the one that matches their suspect's M.O. If the suspect stole a car, the task force needs to identify it before banks open at 9. But months pass with no sign of their suspect. Investigators begin to worry that the killer has gone underground and may never be caught. We assume he's obviously stressed at this particular point. He's feeling the, the heat of the notoriety of what he's done. October 9th, 1992. Special Agent Eight yes. months after the killer's most recent slaying. I get notification from our Baltimore agents that another carjacking has taken place. We've got a white male with a ski mask, latex gloves, and a handgun. Uh, it's taken place all the way up in Baltimore. At approximately 7 a.m., a 15-year-old girl walked to her mother's car. Suddenly, an armed man approached her and demanded the keys. heard this and came to her aid. Get away from the car! 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 There was an exchange of gunfire. And the carjacker took her vehicle and fled the scene. We were feeling very good because we had uh, very, very fresh information and we knew he was on the move and he was in Baltimore and more than likely on the way back here. The task force determines there is no need to wait for a bank robbery. Based on that information, the task force casts the net around the Washington metro area, hoping that he's going to come back through that net. Patrolmen and SWAT units from jurisdictions throughout Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Northern Virginia race to prearranged locations on freeway exit ramps to watch for the stolen car. Since police cannot be sure if the suspect has had time to switch the license plates, they pull over every vehicle matching its description. 
they know they may face a shooter who has already taken four lives. The FBI and police departments throughout the Washington, D.C. area hunt a suspected killer. They stop every vehicle matching the description of the one they believe he stole an hour earlier. Police pull over dozens of cars that come up empty. What's going on? You got a girl. As the search continues, 50 miles away in western Maryland, Brunswick police officer Gary Klein is on routine patrol. I observed a small uh, black and colored passenger vehicle. I saw that there was no front license plate on it. And as the vehicle passed me, I looked over and observed the driver had a nylon stocking pulled down over his face. Kind of shocked me, and I was like, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but kind of drew my attention real quick. I turned around, caught back up to the car, radioed my dispatchers, and uh, the 911 center requested uh, information on the tag. And uh, the subject in the small black car sped off and wouldn't pull over for me. Then I'm informed by our dispatchers that this subject is wanted for uh, shooting at a Baltimore City officer. The hundreds of officers mobilized in the D.C. area are too far away to assist. Officer Klein is alone against a ruthless killer. The adrenaline's pumping now because I'm pursuing this vehicle. Um, knowing somewhere in there I'm going to have to confront this individual. The speeds that we uh, maintained in some places were 90 mile per hour to uh, a little over 100 mile per hour. Officer Klein chases the suspect from Maryland into Virginia. He was very intent on getting away from me. Dispatcher, we're getting ready to go right on Interstate 71. He just went straight down the middle of the bridge, just forcing people east and westbound out of his way. I had to back off because I didn't want to endanger myself or the, the innocent people or citizens out on the street where he was actually able to gain a good bit of distance on me. But once the roadway cleared up a little bit where I could safely get through the vehicles, uh, I was able to catch back up to him. Klein pursues the suspect into West Virginia. Made a right off Route 340 and he went down this small asphalt road and when he hit that, he was going too fast with the rain and everything and lost control and struck the curb. Stepped out of the vehicle with my weapon drawn. And I seen him kind of lean over in the car towards the passenger seat, and I seen the gun come up in, inside the car. Officer Klein is concerned about firing his gun in a public place. When you discharge your weapon, you just don't want a round just going out there somewhere, and you could strike somebody innocent. You have a split second to make this decision, and whatever decision you make can affect you for the rest of your life. At that point, he uh, placed the car in reverse and sped backwards quickly towards my cruiser in what I believe was an attempt to, to ram my car or strike me. proceeded down a uh, small 
access route. And I proceeded after him. He sped into the uh, little dead-end dirt gravel area, and he tried to go behind this bulldozer and wrecked into it. There's nowhere for him to go, and now I have to confront him. At that time, I see the gun coming up, which just kind of made my heart jump out of my chest. While the suspect ducks for cover, Officer Klein strategically moves to his right. You don't want to stay in one position, especially after he already knows where you're at. Klein's tactic works. The suspect fires at the position where Klein used to be. I actually fired more shots at him as he ran to get to the backside of his car for cover. With backup units still minutes away, the lone officer fights to stay alive in a violent face-off with a vicious killer. killer is in a desperate shootout in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, with lone police officer Gary Klein. I see him start to come up from behind his car uh, through the passenger side window with the gun raised and he's coming up. I remember firing at him and uh, striking the car and he ducked down behind the car again. Several seconds passed. He uh, raises back up hear it, the actual sound of the bullet striking the car, the metal, and he ducks back down behind the car again. Finally, backup arrives. When they put their hand on my shoulder and I knew who they were, it was this big relief. The burden was lifted off my shoulders because now I knew I had fellow officers there. Within the next 10 minutes, Police officers from several jurisdictions were on the scene. Come out from behind the car. The gunman realizes he is outnumbered. Then the suspect stood up and walked out in front of myself and my cruiser, probably about 15 yards, and put the gun to his head. And I continued to yell at him to drop the gun, to throw the gun on the ground. It was time he told me he wouldn't do that. West Virginia State Police Corporal John Jeffries begins negotiating with the gunman. After several minutes of negotiation, the suspect then pulled the um, nylon stocking up on the top of his head. Still wasn't able to really get a good, clear look at him. The suspect begins to talk. He says he's an unemployed house painter. He said that he was just upset. He had had some relation problems with his girlfriend, um, that he had done some things he wasn't real happy about, and just all these things had piled up and just troubled him, and he didn't know why he was doing the things he, were, he was doing. After a 45-minute standoff, the gunman makes an unusual demand. I remember him saying he wanted to talk to his mother. So he gave up his mother's name and phone number. Several tense minutes pass as police attempt to reach the suspect's mother. 
he advised uh, the suspect that they had his mother on the phone. The woman on the line asks the negotiator for the suspect's name. He identified himself as Alan Newman. He wasn't real sure of the police. He didn't know if we were just lying to him or what we were doing. He said, well, ask my mom what my favorite cookie is. I remember Corporal Jeffries saying, uh, your mom said your favorite cookie is chocolate chip. And he started crying. It really shocked me because I thought he was just going to drop the gun and give up. You see the hammer coming back and everything's like slow motion. You see the hammer drop. You're waiting for the gun to go off. And it didn't. Seizing the opportunity, officers rush in and subdue the gunman, ending the standoff. After it was all over and done, um, very relieved, very appreciative of all of the guys that were there that day. I was able to help to get this person off the street and um, put him where he needed to be so that nobody else would be would be hurt. Police take Alan Newman into custody and confiscate his Ruger 357 as evidence. It is the same model used in the murders, according to FBI Special Agent Robert Coffey. From the prior ballistics, we knew what type of gun it would be. It would have been a specific Ruger make, and in fact, that's what he was carrying. Um, the same types of bullets that were used in the shootings and the homicides were, in fact, still in the weapon. You have told us that over and over. After nearly a year of hard work, investigators finally meet the killer face to face. We no longer have someone running throughout the counties killing people for cars. Um, we were very uh, excited about getting the chance to talk to the individual to find out why. While Newman admits to the Baltimore carjacking, he refuses to admit to any of the murders, according to homicide detective Ed Day. Throughout the uh, interview process, he remained pretty cocky, and uh, you know, he thought he was pretty cool. Investigators continue to press Newman. While at a firearms laboratory, a ballistics expert fires Newman's gun into an 800-gallon tank of water. The examiner compares the unique markings on the fired bullet to those on the bullets recovered from the four murders and the attempted homicide. Ballistics expert Joe Capera. It is a scientific certainty that this is the firearm that fired these bullets and no other firearm could possibly do that. After hours of interrogation, investigators received the ballistics report. That's like uh, the magic piece of evidence. And that's the one that you really knew would seal the whole case. We had physical undeniable evidence that we could put in front of the jury that he could not refute in any way, shape, or form. 
we could convict him uh, without much trouble and we could have gotten the death sentence with the information that we had, which put it over the top and he decided it was best to uh, make a deal for life rather than take the chance on uh, being executed. Alan Newman pleads guilty to all the charges against him and is sentenced to five life terms without parole plus 100 years for handgun violations. Looking back, it was the collective efforts of more than a dozen police agencies contributing interviews and evidence that led to the successful conclusion of this case. The accomplishment for all police officers and all investigators is to, to arrest the bad guy and put him in jail. And when you do that, you get a nice warm feeling for about 10 minutes until the next case comes in and you have to start all over again. But for now, every investigator who worked this case is content to know they have ended one man's violent rampage. <laughs>